Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting podcast and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 9 and we have a very special guest, Mark Lamborn. Mark has decades of experience in the wagering world. He has a plethora of knowledge from odds to markets and also shares some of the secrets he uses to make a living in the horse racing world. Mark was kind enough to share his number one form factor when it comes to handicapping and some useful tips for the casual punter. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy my chat with Mark Lamborn. Mark, thank you very much for, for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jake. It's a, it's a great thing that you're doing. So, Mark, why don't, and I know a lot of the listeners will know who you are pretty well, but just in case there's one or two out there who don't, do you want to just go through a little bit about you and your background and how you got to where you are today? I've been on Sydney racetracks for 35 years, so I guess that's given me a bit of a, um, uh, a, 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 a sort of a stature, I suppose. Um, look, I first got interested in racing back in the 1972 Melbourne Cup. I was seven years old. I remember thinking that this horse, Gun Sind, I somehow knew of him. Uh, I'm not sure how I knew of him, but I knew he was one of those champion racehorses. And it was about the time that kids start picking their football teams. I'd chosen the Dragons, uh, St George Rugby League team, which I also somehow knew to be one of those great teams. And I had this idea that uh, there were similar horses around and that sort of introduced me to the world of, of horse racing, the fact that there were these uh, horses of great stature and calibre. And um, I remember thinking sort of a couple of years later in the 1975 Melbourne Cup that, you know, this is, this is quite an interesting thing. Uh, there was a, a champion race mare by the name of Leilani around that time. Uh, Bart Cummings had just won yet another uh, in fact, Think Big had just won his second Melbourne Cup. And uh, that those particular um, horses piqued my interest. And uh, at about that time, there were also a couple of my colleagues in primary school who were boasting about their prowess on Saturdays at the local tab. They would get there with their parents and <clears throat> their parents would put a few bets on for them. And apparently they were picking left, winners left, right and centre. So that Christmas holidays, I, um, I sat down and I pulled the, uh, <clears throat> my dad used to buy the, the, uh, the Australian newspaper, we lived in the country, and he, uh, I pulled out the form guide, I remember the date, it was January the 10th, 1976, and I sat down and I thought, well, look, I'm going to have a look at this. Um, I was interested in facts, figures, numbers, I won't say I was a mathematician, but I was certainly good at maths, and I, uh, I was intrigued by the codes and the symbols and um, and the fact that back in 1976, racing was still front and centre as far as uh, Australian culture was concerned. Um, it was, it, whilst it was considered a, a touch low brow, it was certainly um, uh, well entrenched in, um, in, in the way that we lived. Um, obviously, horse racing was broadcast on many radio stations. Uh, the uh, public broadcaster 
pl- actually showed the daily double live, so they'd break into whatever they were show- whatever they were playing at the time, to actually show the legs of the daily double. Uh, at night time, they, they'd also do the same with the, the Harold Park trots. Um, unthinkable now, I know, but uh, back in that time, it was um, quite accessible horse racing. So anyway, I sat down there with my uh, form guide and attempted to figure it out, and that led me on a journey that's taken me um, some 40 years later in d- deep into the uh, the recesses of, uh, of what makes horse racing tick or particularly what makes horse racing form tick. So I, uh, back in my junior days, I experimented with systems. I, I scoured the place for any systems books that were around. Obviously, they were fairly um, rudimentary. Um, Don Scott hadn't written his books at that stage, but by the time Don came along, uh, I was hungry for more, and uh, weight ratings were the um, were uh, in in the ascendancy, and so I got right into um, into basically digging around horses' form the way that uh, I had learned through some of those texts. I, uh, I believe I became aware of the fact that Rem Plant had predated Don by some time, but was less well known, and he'd written some sort of similar types of uh, of uh, theories basically around weight. So I got to the racetrack as a, as a 17-year-old um, in Sydney, keen to get uh, get a foothold in there. I was at university, but I was hoping to get a, a clerking job to, to pay my way. And uh, fortunate enough at the age of 17 to get a job. And that was pretty much it for me because whilst I was at uni, technically at uni for the next three or four years, uh, I'd just fallen completely in love with the race course. Back in the early 80s, it was just full of personalities. There were lots of young kids like me uh, that were all ardent, enthusiastic, just uh, soaking in the atmosphere of the racetrack back then because uh, whilst the crowds had started to dwindle, they were still quite sizable. There was uh, many, many, many bookies. There was, you know, 100 or so bookies on on, uh, Sydney Metropolitan Racetracks, Uh, several enclosures. They'd they'd closed the flat uh, some seven years before, but... There was still the ledger in operation, and it was the only place. It was a it was a place where you could just you could actually um, drown in that stuff because um, whilst you know the tab was 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 now had a strong foothold, the idea of off course racing for anybody that was seriously interested was unthinkable. So for the next I suppose fifteen years, the racetrack was the only place to be. Um, I'd uh, managed to to do a little b- bit of bookmaking, which I saw as a necessary apprenticeship. Uh, I loved bookmaking. I only did it on the provincial courses, but uh, formed a close relationship with a, uh, a, a rails bookmaker by the name of Peter Todd, who was uh, very, very highly regarded. And uh, we, he sort of acted as my mentor. I was his protege, and I uh, went on a steep, steep learning curve. Just one of those situations where because you're so into something, you just cannot uh, seek and learn enough, and uh, I've been—I pretty much had that attitude throughout my um, my racing career. I, I just cannot get enough of, of whatever anyone else is thinking or doing, and I think it's very important to be within the community in order to access that. A significant change that I, uh, I learned in the late '90s was that um, when things had sort of taken a, a bit of a, a right-hand turn. Um, there was an organisation called Humbleton that was advertising in, uh, in in the Sportsman. And so I went along to this symposium where they were basically 
inter- interviewing sort of likely candidates for their, uh, for their for the positions they had on offer, and I suddenly became aware that it was this whole, whole community outside the racetrack that knew some very very clever stuff. In fact, I was I was amazed uh, at this uh, this meeting I went to that there were people that really knew new aspects of horse racing that I considered had only pertained to the racetrack previously. The community that I'd been in on the racetrack, we, were, we considered ourselves cutting edge and um, we, we'd, we would sort of like throw around these theories. There were, um, I was, let's say, in a group of half a dozen of, of, that I would, you know, communicate throughout the course of the race meeting and we'd just, we'd just try and make sense of what was going on and, and what was to come and it was that continual uh, sort of thrashing around that um, that enhanced continually enhanced our knowledge um, and understanding. And so I considered that uh, there were chosen few on the racetrack that had this knowledge that the, the public couldn't possibly understand. That they were still stuck with their um, with their truisms of of days gone by. And, and we, you know we'd sort of we'd access the the darker secrets of the track. But then I became aware that you know, the, there's clever people everywhere. Uh, racing might be on the slide, but uh, there's a ton of clever people in uh, in the racing industry. And uh, I suppose it was at that point that I realised that in order to turn a dollar on horse racing, you actually needed to butt heads with all these very very clever people. And we were uh, looking at um, at uh, an ever dwindling pie. So. Basically, from the mid '90s, it became aware that uh, bookmaking was was uh, well, bookmakers were dropping like flies. Um, the pros were eating each other, um, and it had become a situation where there was there was no more fill in the racing industry. Um, obviously, people like Jelko and Co. worked out that the place to go was to to, to seek rebates on the tab, and it was becoming a um, a marginal game, but because you love the game so much, you just can't think of playing anything else. And so, for the last 15 years, uh, I've, I guess, perhaps moved to. Obviously, um, it's been about accessing the corporate landscape that that that's come into play. But I see myself now also as someone that uh, that wants to either access or recreate some sort of online learning community um, that. Uh, disseminates and 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 discusses uh, cutting edge form information and uh, betting information. That's where I see myself now, Jake. So, how have you seen trying to recreate that sort of vibrant culture and marketplace uh, from the seventies and eighties, and when it started to dwindle through the nineties and onwards? Are you obviously you have the the videos that you put out through the racing rant, and have you utilized that? Um, as a way to try and recreate something that was of that vibrant culture in in the olden days, or is it much too difficult to do that? Um, it's it's a recreation of a sort. Uh, obviously, that 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 being with people in the flesh is far different. Um, but we have what we have, and obviously, it's 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 an it's an awesome tool that technology has given us to enable us to reach out. Around the globe, for um, you know, for people with that, that share your passion, um, and and uh, that is, is incredibly useful. Um, you know, 
I, um, people have obviously got to find you and you've got to find them, but nevertheless, it's, uh, it's, it's a new world. It's, it's just a different world and um, obviously um, we're, access, we're, we're sharing with people that are at, at different points on the spectrum. But look, it's, it's pretty exciting to, um, to, 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 to interact and engage with people that, uh, that share your passion. So you touched on it a little bit earlier about the, the marketplace as it was and a few of the developing trends and some of the changes. What have been some of the main, I guess, differences from the, you mentioned the 1972 Melbourne Cup through to the 80s and then towards now. Have the changes been just cosmetic and the underlying principles remain the same or have there been market shifts over the last few decades? Um, it's, it's changed radically and totally. So uh, prior to my time, bookmaking was all about facilitating. There were two types of punters. There were were the recreational punter and the professional punter. And it was almost as if the bookmaker and the professional punter were in bed together. They were sharing the proceeds from the recreational punters. And um, the the professional punters respected the bookmakers. The bookmakers, there was a reciprocal arrangement there. So as that recreational money dis- started to disappear from the racetrack, and it obviously started with the advent of the tab in 1964, uh, so it, it became that that relationship between the bookmaker and the pro punter started to change because suddenly the bookmaker was unable to facilitate the whole thing as well. Um, the pro punter started to eat into his margins, and that there was an antithetical sort of aspect to that uh, relationship that 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 uh, that grew. So we reached the situation on the track where bookmakers started to become sceptical of the pro punters. Pro punters were farm, you know started acting more aggressively towards the bookmakers, and it just it imploded. That uh, bring on the the online revolution. And the first corporate bookmaker that I recall was uh, Mark Reed's Darwin All Sports. And that was actually a, um, quite an interesting development because Mark was basically setting out as an educator saying, well, look, um, in, order to, um, in order for us to have a game, you know, we need to educate our customers. Um, but unfortunately, his lead was not followed at all. So the subsequent corporate bookmakers that set up, they were seeking to gain regain access to the recreational money by, by dint of the fact that they had, um, they had a wider access, but they were coming to that game with the view that the professional punters were evil. So rather than, uh, you know, professional punters help me to, to set my book, help me to establish what's what, it's the professional punters are, um, are, are the devil and um, they're just there to, 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 to corrode my margins. We then saw some 10 to 15 years after that, the fact that uh, the English corporates or the, the European corporates came to Australia and I suspect they were looking at our paramutual setup and thinking, wow, there's the, the paramutual has such a large market share Obviously, all those people need is one of us to bet with, and they'll come over to us. We, you know, we can aggressively poach them. There's that huge market that's just waiting to bet with um, with uh, an, uh, an international bookmaker. 
And I think they were, I mean, I presume that that's what they were thinking, and I think they were wrong in that thinking. But nevertheless, they came in, uh, soaked up whatever corporate bookmakers were for sale. In fact, that's fairly sort of standard international procedure where you uh, you start an organisation that's successful for a while, but then you realise that you know it's either get bigger or, or or pump yourself up for a sale. And a number of the bookmakers in Australia uh, saw that opportunity, and so we had a situation where the um, the established Ladbrokes and Paddy Powers and uh, William Hills of this world uh, came in and um, and took over the Australian bookmaking operations, and they came in with their own viewpoint. Um, certainly um, enhanced by the fact that the corporate landscape in Australia was was um, was not interested in in entertaining a professional marketplace, and we've reached a situation today where there's a very very uneasy. Uh, alliance. Well, it's not an alliance, really, but it's an une- uneasy relationship between the the pros and the corporate bookmakers. And so, I would say that in in the fifty years that I've spoken about, that uh, it's the the, book, the the whole thing has changed from uh, a game for everyone to um, an adversarial type uh, situation where uh, it's uh, it, it's a constant tension between the bookmakers and the passionate pros. So I want to touch on what you just mentioned about some of the strategy of the bookmakers and corporate bookmaking. Let's play devil's advocate for a moment and let's flip the script a little bit. So you're a, you and I are starting a bookmaking business. We're coming into the Australian landscape. We have a good solid foundation uh, of what the history has been. Why would it be useful uh, for the bookmakers to befriend the professionals and uh, take them on. Um, that these these bookmaking companies obviously have some smart people, and they would have considered the best approach. Is it a higher risk approach for them to accept a lot of these professional wages and accept a lot of these uh, syndicates and their different betting strategies? Uh, and if so, you know they've obviously decided not to. But do you think that is an easy option? Because I would imagine you need to hire a lot of talented. Uh, a talented bookmakers or, or people involved in setting the markets and and moving the odds and being there on race day and that's probably not cheap and the current scenario and the option they've gone with is probably cheaper and I would imagine risk free is that correct or have I sort of misinterpreted a little bit? Um, <clears throat> well, you've got to you've got to accept the fact that these guys the, the the pro punters are clever and they will find ways around so. If you're going to be running a constant battle, then you're going to be fighting on many fronts. Um, the way it once was back in the the olden days, it's all about volume. So it's about um, it's about finding enough volume in the game to accommodate this scenario. So you engage with the player rather than battle with the player. So once upon a time, uh, the Little country bookmaker in Dubbo, he would uh, he would set his stand at the at the races there every Saturday. They were non-tab meetings, but they had good local custom. Um, he would get a call from uh, Ray Hopkins in Sydney or Laurie Bricknell on the Gold Coast, um, and this was on race morning. Um, the the country bookmaker didn't really have a great idea of what price uh, to offer these these punters on a, a race that was going to happen in Sydney or Brisbane or Melbourne later that day, but there'd be a negotiation. And uh, 
uh, the, the country bookie might say, yes, Ray, you can have, uh, you can have 5,000 to 1,000 uh, XYZ uh, in race five today at Randwick. Uh, and what that country bookmaker would use with that information was that he would, he would have a very strong opinion about how that horse was going to uh, trade in the marketplace because he had just bought some incredible information that he would never have had access to otherwise. So he would go to the races that day and there would be another dozen bookmakers there at Dubbo and he might back that horse with those with those bookmakers in the knowledge that it was very, very strongly fancy. Whether or not he might have had to, 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 um, to pay a fine, he may not have got his mo- the, the, the money that he'd offered the pro punter at the price, he may not have got that. But uh, he, look, he... he He's bought that knowledge. Knowledge, it's it's priceless knowledge, and uh, he's he's prepared to go with it. Or he may have an opinion strongly against that horse, and um, he may uh, use that knowledge to 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 market or to lay that horse at a shorter price, knowing that it's going to firm because it's got this strong pro opinion behind it. So that was the way it used to work, where the bookmaker harnessed the knowledge of the pro punter and attempted to use it to his advantage. Uh, Mark Reed, when uh, he started his corporate bookmaking, also had the same idea. He would play these pro punters, profile them, and then attempt to go with them to a small or large degree, depending on how he's assessed their um, their their uh, acuity. So um, that is one model, and safe to say, it's not applied very widely these days. Now, if I'm, if you and I are setting up a bookmaking business, firstly, there are a lot of bookmakers around uh, and whilst they're, they're wary of taking bets, the fact is that you will be able to spread, you'll be able to create some volume just simply by the range of the, the number of bookmakers there are, even though, even if they're not betting you very large amounts. So I'm, I'm going, we're going to set up relationships with, with the pro punters that, that come to us and we're going to say, look, you know, we recognise that, um, that it's almost more valuable for us to get your information than to employ a huge team to try and recreate that information. So we're perhaps going to, to have a, a small team, a, a small sharp team behind us, but we're going to, uh, <clears throat> we're going, so we're going to have a, a, a foundation and then you're going to come to us we're going to let you on for a reasonable amount and we're going to attempt to use that information in the marketplace. And that's, you know, whilst it is, it is a, a smallish game, unless we engage all the players, there's no hope of it growing. Yep, so we don't necessarily need to employ Peter Todd, Dominic Byrne and Mark Reed from day one and have them sort of running things internally. We can gather the market intelligence and the information from those we've profiled and use that as one of our main tools, essentially. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's a sensible way to go because, you know, wh- why attempt to, to fight them off when uh, you know that they're going to be in the marketplace somewhere? Cultivate that relationship. Uh, we don't want them sort of sending what, what are known as bowlers in who are supposedly, uh, um, you know, people that we don't know that they're betting for. Um, we actually want, you know, we, we want a fa- almost a face-to-face engagement with them. Yep, okay. One more question on the... The bookmaking specific side, you mentioned rebates from the TAB. Um, for those who don't know, why did the TAB do it? And are there any, I guess, perception issues or even ethical issues, uh, I, say, I guess, public facing in doing so? 
yes, yes and yes. It's one of those situations where I suppose commercially forever and a day, um, businesses have recognised that if they've got large volume, large custom, that they're prepared to offer discounts to those large customers. So it goes on um, in a widespread fashion. Um, the tabs have a monopoly on the high street in Australia. So um, they're the only ones that are allowed to conduct business in, um, in, in public areas. So they had uh, an advantageous selling position in the first place. They also have <clears throat> a uh, legislated um, um, takeout. So uh, they're taking out between 15 and 25%, depending on the, 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 the betting option. And um, they're required, obviously, to give a portion of that back to the racing industry, and that's the racing industry's, well, was the racing industry's funding model until Racefield's legislation came along. And um, they're prepared to trade away some of that, um, some of that uh, legislated edge in, order, in return for more volume because they, their business model was, well, we want to grow turnover, grow turnover, because obviously higher turnover means um, higher profit in their situation because they're not compromising their margin for higher volume. Yep. But they also reached a stage where um, it was it started a flatline, you know, particularly with the, uh, the online um, bookmaking phenomenon. That, you know, they were attempting to poach uh, the tab's customers. They may have even been offering to bet them tab prices, which uh, was, a, was another battle that, uh, that took place. And so we have a situation where the tabs are going, well, you know, how do we, how do we increase our volume? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll um, offer some um, discounts to the big players. And uh, I, su I suppose that that is seen as uh, a commercial reality. As far as, you know, you've got a, a legislated body that uh, is supposedly offering a, um, a product to the public that can't be competed with on one level, uh, it, is, it is a bit ethically problematic, uh, that arrangement. So I, uh, you know, obviously people have spoken about that. It is in existence. Um, I understand the business model and... Um, the big players that uh, that have sort of grown in the last ten to fifteen years have seen that as an obvious place to play to um, to get the discount in order to uh, to offset the edge. You know, they they recognise that they can they can overcome a ten percent edge, but they can't overcome a ten a fifteen percent edge. So um, that's the way it's gone. Okay, and this race fields legislation, what is the genesis of it? And why is it only applicable to racing? Is it something that's deeply embedded and therefore it's able to exist? Because there's obviously no, you know, rugby legislation or Australian football legislation in order for them and those leagues to get a piece of the pie. Can you just, uh, and I'm not sure how deep your understanding is of the, the race fields legislation, but how did that all come about? Um, well, we started with the position where, um, as I mentioned before, that the tab was uh, the, the 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 guaranteed take from the tab was funding racing. Uh, bookmakers, on course bookmakers, paid a turnover tax to the local club, and also to the the state the the, the treasury, the state government. And um, once that situation began to change and corporate bookmaking got a hold and started uh, aggressively taking market share away from certainly um, the on-course bookmakers and eventually the tab. Um, racing was obviously at, a, at some sort of a crisis point because um, they could see their, um, 
uh, and this is especially uh, pertinent when Betfair came along, um, they could see their, uh, their, their funding model under threat. So um, they were, I suppose, looking at ways that they could um, get some of that uh, revenue from the corporate bookmakers. And interestingly, uh, I mean, they started off on the wrong foot because the corporate bookmakers that set up in the late 90s, early 2000s were seen as the devil and they were not welcome, certainly in New South Wales. So the Northern Territory sensed a business opportunity and they um, set up sympathetic arrangements whereby the, the corporate bookmakers could be registered in Northern Territory. So they're on they're on Australian soil, so they're all good. And But unfortunately, New South Wales has no access to them in terms of um, taxes or or uh, any type of um, uh, revenue. So um, mid-2000s, um, Racing New South Wales, I don't know whether they came up with the idea or whatever, but uh, they managed to institute an arrangement where if um, they claimed copyright on the, the horses' names that they put together. So um, you know, they were responsible for for taking acceptances and um, and publishing the names, and so they asserted some sort of copyright over those names, and clearly that was legally strong enough to um, to prevent the or entities that weren't registered in New South Wales from having to pay some sort of license fee to use those race fields. Um, so thankfully, um, they they did find a way to actually claw back some of the, the, the lost revenue that the, that the corporate bookmakers had um, had managed to, to garner a share of. Unfortunately, at the same time, they threw Betfair into that net and Betfair, who only make money off the winnings of the players in the exchange, were suddenly being taxed on the, on, on the actual matchings themselves, which made Betfair Australia instantly unviable. It forced Betfair to drive away all the arbitrages, tell them, basically call them and say, please don't bet on our markets. And so, you know, Betfair's been, had its hands tied behind its back for the, for the last 10 years. Um, so that's, that's where we've gone to in the race fields legislation. Now, obviously, with the introduction of a new tax, and it's pertinent to Australia because we've had discussions about raising the GST or our... our, our um, our, our sort of widespread sales tax uh, pretty much ever since it was instituted. Once you institute a tax, then uh, the, the way forward is, is to actually raise that tax. So we've now seen a situation where the racing bodies have attempted to assert um, larger increases in the race fields tax. Um, so they've, they've, they've come up with this idea that if we run a, a $150,000 race on a program, well, that's, that's now a premium meeting, so we can levy a premium charge. And um, at carnival time, that's obviously premium time, so, you know, you should have to pay larger uh, race fields fee and so on and so forth. So we will see an environment where that's going to get stickier and stickier, that, um, you know, Racing seems to have a pile of money as a result of this race fields legislation, but uh, they will be seeking to uh, to enhance that revenue, and um, and I, I imagine the corporates will start feeling the bite of that, and that will then become they'll then become more aggressive in terms of attempting to drive away the the customers that are eating into their margins, um, looking for softer and softer recreational money, which is it's a fairly mature market now, so. 
I'm not sure if there's a lot for them to find, but um, I think Sean Byrne touched on some of the um, some of the ways forward for them to try and try and um, to uh, get the marketplace the way that uh, is, is sympathetic to their bottom line. So, in terms of the race fields legislation, look, it's it's a it's it's a, it's a relatively new thing in racing. It's it's, it's sort of clever. But I think racing's really missed the boat in the sense that um, I may have touched on an earlier interview about the, um, the fact that most of our leakage in this industry is actually to the owners of stallions. Um, so we've got a setup where racing is, is well funded, but it's totally funded by wagering. And what this wagering does is drive prize money increases, which is all lovely, but where's that prize money going? It's going into yielding prices. And uh, high yielding prices basically benefit only one entity in the racing game, and that's the stallion owner. And uh, since we've had shuttle stallions for the last 20 or, 20 or so years, um, it just so happens that the owners of most of those stallions happen to reside in the Northern Hemisphere. And so this is great. We're, we're, um, we're, we're making lots of money out of racing, and we're delivering it to uh, Coolmore in Ireland, for example. So... It's 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 a it's a problematic funding model in that sense that uh, that it's all directed to paying money to breeders. What we need to look at is we need to work out how to tax every single service in racing, not just the wagering service. So, for example, I sell a form product on Saturday to my customers for eighty dollars. Now I have to pay GST on that, so I'm netting seventy two. But I am a service provider in the racing industry, and I might, you know, I might be a very marginal service provider because I'm 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 working in one of the um, or I'm offering a service in one of the particularly recessed areas of the racing industry. But nevertheless, I turn a dollar out of the racing industry, and I am happy to pay some sort of um, tax, uh, some sort of GST on that particular service that I offer. So the stallion owner who uh, charges 100000 for a service to his stallion um, needs to be paying something as well. So as far as I can see, that the way forward for the racing industry is actually widen its base rather than concentrating on this U-butte, we've got funding from the tab and we've got race fields legislation. Yep, it's a very complex topic and I think... Uh... Eyes light up when they see the wagering pools in certain respects, and I think also the the complexity leads to the too hard basket uh, dropping in there and just letting it simmer away. So I think it's a I guess any type of change is probably going to be a difficult uh, lobbying process. Let's put it that way. I want to uh, change tracks a little bit. You're obviously very curious in what you've sort of mentioned earlier, um, Hong Kong racing. Do you follow it deeply and what can be learnt from Hong Kong? And they seem to be, you know, world leading in so many respects. So you look across at Hong Kong in awe, and I have done ever since I became aware of them, the, the beast. Uh, look, they're focused very differently. And obviously they've got a very, very sympathetic setup where uh, they import all their talent. Um, so it's, it's like a super league. Uh, and they don't have to. They don't have to do any grassroots at all, uh, other than to to make sure that their millions of punters are um, are fed appropriately. So they've got the best of all setups in that they don't have to. Uh, I mean, they obviously pay um, big dollars for the horses and the jockeys and the trainers, um, 
but they've, they've got a, a setup where they can control racing so neatly and offer a product that is so palatable. Um, and they're totally mindful of who their product is directed at, and that's the punters. So they make all their money from wagering. And um, they're very focused on the wagering customer. They want to offer them the best possible product. They want to, they want to make sure that they're informed as, as much as possible. They recognize you know, what their customers want. And <clears throat> so it's an easy setup, but they're also very customer focused. Um, and so for, since my media career ba uh, began 20 years ago, uh, I've sort of banged on about the fact that, look, here's the model. You know, we just need to try and mimic Hong Kong in whatever way we can. Obviously, we've got um, a setup that, uh, that <clears throat> is, 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 is not as amenable, but, um, you know, so structurally, we're, we're very different, but they've got a focus that we don't. Um, and <clears throat> their focus has meant that they've had volume that we could only dream of. And it's that volume that enables their game to be so bright and shiny. And it's, ob it's obviously attracted, you know, worldwide attention, that volume. Um, that, you know, if you, want, if you want a game to play, then you've got to have a size like that. So on that, on that tact a little bit, the idiosyncrasies between the jurisdictions on the track. So, for example, you know, you'll see in different jurisdictions outside of Australia, jockeys happy to sit three wide from the, you know, the thousand meter mark and, you know, build up the momentum of the horse. Um, in Australia, that would be suicide. How is it that all these different jurisdictions can have these different nuances? And I'm not sure if it's, better or worse in any type of jurisdiction if you rode the Australian style in Europe would that be effective or vice versa it seems like in the Melbourne Cup every year you have a an Irish jockey on a on a an English horse who takes off and they're usually pretty short in the market and don't seem to be able to hit the finish line is is that something that is I guess particular to the individual jurisdiction it would seem to be so. I, you know, I haven't scoured the world, um, you know, admi admiring the the local style. But it would appear that uh, a visiting jockey does need to recognise the way that races are configured in that jurisdiction. So, I would suggest that the style that is best suited to the locals is the style that needs to be adopted. Obviously, you can bring some of some of your nuance to that, but in the main, it would appear that um, that when in Rome, you need to act like the Romans. So we had an example um, two years ago where uh, um, Godolphin imported two of their uh, English riders to ride during our autumn carnival in Sydney. And I would say they were less than effective. Um, we had a situation where James Doyle returned 18 months later with the benefit of that experience, and he was... It was a sensation. So I, I, it, it would seem to me that uh, instantly or uh, um, significantly uh, in the beginning, riders will bring their own style. I mean, they, they're not going to know how to ride any differently. And that will be some sort of disadvantage for, their, um, for their, uh, the horses that they're riding. But once they adapt to the local style and... As I say, they can bring their own their own uh, 
peculiarities to that particular style. But once they recognise that a style is most suited to, or the style, the local style is most suited to the local racing, um, then I think they can prosper. So I, I would suggest that there will obviously be exceptions to that that theory, but uh, it's about <clears throat> it's about sort of recognising that the local style is best suited for a a, a long-standing reason. It's it's clearly got to do with the the way races are run in that jurisdiction. You've obviously got factors and variables and styles and all those types of things. It must drive you mad sometimes, or is that what you love about it as well? Look, that, that's what the, that's what's so bloody juicy and delicious about this game is that is that there is no one factor. I mean, obviously there are edges in single factors, but uh, it is it is a dynamic organism, and that's what's that's what's been in, inherently enticing to me is that there's just so many different attributes, and it's 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 it's, it's a challenge that uh, that has so many faces that it's. Uh, well, you, 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 it's vexing, but it's uh, as I say, it's, um, it's a delicious uh, pursuit. Can you take me through how you go about assessing jockeys and also weight? Okay, jockeys are clearly jockeys are one of those self-fulfilling things where uh, a jockey is seen to have ability, is uh, becomes in demand. Um, he then is positioned on the better horses with the better chances. He comes to believe that he's on a uh, on a better chance in the race, rides it accordingly, and you find the the, the apex of the pyramid when it comes to jockeys uh, are, are the, the the very successful is the very successful area of jockeyship. So that seems quite obvious to me that. Uh, the, the, the differences in ability in the jockeys may not be that great, but they're magnified by the, by the way the situation plays out. Weight is one of those things which I obviously started with because back in the um, early 80s, uh, weight was king. And it was the one piece of data that you could actually get your hands on. And most of the systems or the elaborate systems at the time uh, manipulated weights in order to arrive at some sort of uh, market outcome. Uh, over time, I've, I've been persuaded of the view that it's a far more dynamic thing than that, than that sort of rudimentary quantification that we find across the marketplace. So you'll still find everybody in the mainstream media going, well, such and such is meeting such and such two kilos better and whatever. It's, I, I think that that's, um, uh, it's, it's, wasteful talk or it's wasteful wasteful analysis uh what was what really concentrated my mind was i think uh, back in the early 90s i saw a situation where uh horse a was meeting horse b significantly better at the weights and what happened in that situation was not only was everyone aware of the significant weight shift but the tactics employed actually brought it uh um, brought it to a, a fait accompli almost. So what happens with significant weight shifts is that all the players believe in these weight shifts and so they come true. Um, uh, X horse is lightly weighted. The, the, the connections are positive about the horse. They employ positive tactics on the horse. Horse B is poorly weighted, perceived to be poorly weighted. Suddenly suddenly everyone's very reserved and... and um, 
and uh, they, they, they take a, a very sort of negative approach when it comes to positioning the horse. Oh, you know, we wanted to, don't want to ask this horse to do much because it's so poorly weighted. So weights, are, it's very important to be conscious of what is perceived to be well weighted and poorly, well weighted and badly weighted, but that in of itself won't create the result. What it will, what it will do is it will influence the way the match progresses or the way the uh, the, the, the way that the race uh, is in fact uh, viewed and uh, attacked by by the participants. Yeah, I think weight and jockeys will be debated uh, forevermore, and as long as we have horse racing, we're gonna have jockeys and weight. So I think it'll be a factor forever. Can you um, touch on a little bit about Victoria and New South Wales, Melbourne and Sydney racing? They obviously both compete in different ways, and there's different styles in each state and each track and those type of things can you tell me how you handle uh horses going from melbourne to sydney and vice versa so let's start with the the fundamental fundamentals of racing in australia horses in new south wales are more uh, sorry are better bred more expensive horses so you'll find the pool of horses in sydney is a superior a superior pool to the pool of horses in melbourne now that's obviously not the end of it um but that's Part of the reason why it is difficult for Victorians to to compete in the Sydney arena with a great de- de- degree of success, obviously they then need situations, the, the situation to be um, favourable in some other way. Now we had a recent experience in the autumn where uh, the Victorians performed uh, better than better than usual and. Um, the wisdom, the prevailing wisdom, seemed to be that uh, Sydney's autumn was very wet. Uh, Victorian autumn is typically dry, and those horses were having far better preparations, uh, and then coming to Sydney and being and being able to succeed by virtue of their their better preparation. That's that's possible. It could also be that those horses came to Sydney with form on firm ground, and I've I've found that the best form is obviously form on form firm ground because more of the horses in a race are competitive. So you'll find that um, form on, uh, on wet ground is, is suspect simply because there are fewer horses competitive in, a, in that situation. So it could even have been not so much that the horses were fitter, but that they were, well, they were fitter in a, in a competitive sense because they'd been running in races that, that, um, that involved more competition. Um, Sydney to Melbourne is, is is particularly fertile because we see a lot of that in the spring where the Sydney uh, spring is sort of up and running a bit earlier than the, the than the Melbourne spring. Uh, obviously, the Melbourne spring is has got a longer longer lead time, um, and because of the inherent advantage that Sydney horses have, they go to Melbourne and for, certainly for the first few weeks, particularly the first few weeks of October. They make a mess of Melbourne. Um, they've, you know, they've really got a, quite a competitive advantage there. Yeah, some some really useful info, especially springtime when you've got eighteen horse fields and you're trying to work out last minute who you're going to have a small bet on uh, after you've had a couple of drinks. But yeah, certainly some good information there. Can I just ask you, once you've done the form and you've done the handicapping and you've got maybe some prices in your own market, how do you go about attacking the the real marketplace and the odds and some of the things you think about when you're uh, post-form and you're looking at what the market is doing and where you think it will go? 
So I'll give you an example from yesterday where there was a market posted on um, on Wednesday for Rose Hill races on Saturday, and there were four horses in the uh, four horses predominantly in the market. So there was uh, one horse at uh, at three dollars fifty. There was a, another horse at six dollars and two horses at eight dollars. Now, I identified the the, the six dollar and the two dollar two horses at eight dollars to be a bit mythical as far as the market was concerned. Two of them were resumers, and the marketplace is particularly um, critical of resumers. They, I mean, whilst they can be fashionable and, and, and backable, the fact is that once you get a little bit older, um, the market will be extremely hard on resumers. And the other horse was a talented three-year-old that had uh, gone a bit missing. He'd been out of the jurisdiction, he'd gone away and, and, and failed. <clears throat> and there was a major query over him. So there's four horses making up the market. I identified three of them to be quite soft, which <clears throat> immediately made me feel that the five to two, the, the three dollar fifty chance would in fact be two dollars eighty, come um, post time. And it's that sort of situation. You, you, you're aware of the way the market works. You're aware of the aspects of the horse's form, and you say, well, the market is going to head in this direction with this horse, and is likely to head in this direction with the uh, with the, with the horse that's that's got the more positive attributes, and I see that as 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 a way to as certainly my way or my preferred mo, where I know the horse has formed well enough, I know the way the market operates or or, or assesses or approaches or uh, positions these horses, and so I'm able to make a judgment about where the market will shift. That's as good as insight as you get into how in-depth you need to know the form and the, the, the forces that are at play in the market and obviously the type of thinking you need to be on the same level as the professionals that you're essentially betting with and against in those marketplaces. So, yeah, really deep, really deep insight and great knowledge there. Can you also maybe touch on a couple of the, I mean, we mentioned some of the international factors and styles and maybe some of the things that you use, um, some tools and things that help you when you're doing the form, uh, which you which you value highly and, and help you on a on a race by race or, or you know week by week basis. So I've spent my life focused on Sydney racing, and so I don't claim to have um, a great knowledge of racing outside of that area. And there are things that I do in relation to the horses I look at that will be applicable worldwide. But there are other things that are idiosyncratic and and and, and are about knowing a particular track or knowing a particular riding style or um, knowing the, the climate of that area, for example. But there is one universal tool, and, I, and it took me a long time to understand its significance, and that is the starting price. Now, there may be peculiarities in the collection of uh, starting prices, uh, depending on where you are. But in the main, the starting price is supposed to represent the consensus of all the players. Everyone's, everyone's had their say, and they've had their say using their money. So it's not, uh, <coughs> they're not words, they're acts. So we have this consensus, which is the starting price. You may line that up with uh, the, the Betfair starting price or the, the final tab price, whatever you want to use. There's an indication of what was expected of a horse in that situation. And it's obviously governed by the, the, the conditions that reigned at that time. 
So, you know, a starting price on a, on a heavy track is, it needs to be mindful that it is a, a heavy track starting price, but it is the expectation of how that horse was going to perform that day. Now, you run the race and you run the race only once. And that's not really, um, that's, that's actually really going to be a great indication of how those horses fitted together. Look, it, it, it may be all right, but you've got a tool there in the starting price, which was the expectation of how that horse was, was going to perform. And it's a bit like, you know, your, your expectation of the coin toss, you know, you know that um, the, uh, the, the fair coin has, has the 50% probability of either side. And so when you've seen 10 heads in a row, which can, can clearly happen, uh, nevertheless, you know that the expectation of, of tails remains 50%. So <clears throat> it's that expectation you can, you can underlay, you underpin your form with. And what really got me started on that was when I started um, examining head-to-head performances. So I'd, I'd, pr- I'd do a head-to-head printout of the, of the horses that I was looking at. And I'd comb that head-to-head and I'd, go, and I'd marvel at the fact that, um, that horses that uh, started particular prices against each other, so the, the shorter horse would next start start longer than the other horse and yet beat it home it, 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 it <clears throat> whereas that 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 position had been reversed previously so uh I, I sort of started to marvel on the fact that this expectation was was go- needed to underpin your your assessment of the coming race so if horse a was expected to ho- beat horse b that is it had a short shorter starting price last time then um, all, th- all things considered, it, pr- it should be expected to beat horse B again tomorrow, irrespective of what happened in that one one instance of where they ran together. So when I finally realised, uh, you know, sort of 20 years into my into my form research, that starting price was 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 the number one form factor, then suddenly I could start to to build up my my form assessment arsenal in what I consider to be uh, an appropriate way. Um, so that, so that's, that's, yeah. Sorry, so how Jay. do you battle the cognitive biases that sort of afflict the human brain and the human condition? Because if you do have a horse that is, you know, a 50% chance of winning and perhaps it runs, you know, last, for example, and we've discussed previously about form being a dynamic instrument and, You've got to be able to adapt uh, in certain circumstances. How do you balance or control that cognitive aspect? Well, I, I suppose that you know the, the emphasis on that expectation is an attempt to rein in, uh, you know, the, the, the cognitive tendency to, to to run away with with what you've seen. Um, I, I heard Ralphie um, uh, mention very vehemently about the fact that the eye lies, and it's a it's a very interesting idea. Um, as humans, we are we're we're prey to um, to running running away with our emotions and and, and our and our and, and what what we perceive, and it, it's it's very important. And 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 various um, clever people have constructed other other means of of reining themselves in. Um, so I would suggest that it is it is very important to recognise. That what you see or what you perceive or, or what you have, what, what you've witnessed, is uh, not necessarily a truth. So, how do you utilize the SP, the starting price? Do you take it 
as gospel and are strictly confined to what the SP was? Or do you have some type of repricing strategy that you use as well? I have a very, very rudimentary algorithm that I run on a starting price. And I'm basically using a class rating, um, joining that with the starting price and, uh, and, and using that to produce a, a rating. So that it's, 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 a, it's a class rating that's amended for starting price. And it's sort of loose in the sense that you've suggested that starting price is, is subject to, um, to, to a fashion, I suppose. Um, you know, it, it's not the, I, I presented it as the holy grail. What I, what I perhaps should have said is that it's, it's, the, it's the linchpin uh, of, of our racing, of our form analysis. So um, I, I can then match horses against each other based on that sort of amended class rating. So a horse that you know that that starts even money in a particular grade, um, irrespective of its performance, uh, needs to have a better rating than a horse that starts ten to one in that grade, because clearly their um, their uh, capabilities, as reflected by that starting price, are significantly different. On a different tact, what about trainers? How do you incorporate or factor in? trainers obviously in victoria you've got the explosion of darren weir in recent times i guess sydney has been dominated by chris waller and obviously gay waterhouse in recent times as an example gay waterhouse how do you incorporate or factor in if at all or if how much um sort of her as a trainer as a variable so d- different trainers have different styles and i would suggest that uh, gay is perhaps more potent in the betting market than than chris waller uh who by sheer dint of numbers and the fact that he's able to attract the best talent onto his horses, and he obviously prepares his horses extremely well. But Gay has a particular style of um, horses being put into the race. Uh, they're aggressively ridden, they take up a forward position, and by dint of that, they're able to own races in the way that uh, the, that Chris, who tends to be more conservative, has his horse ridden off the speed, and they need circumstances to work for them. So from a betting point of view, um, you can be far more gung-ho about uh, assessing a, a Waterhouse horse than you perhaps would be about a Waller horse. But nevertheless, the point is, so aside from that nuance, um, what it is about these large successful stables is that it's, it becomes self-fulfilling because they attract the best riders and they are seen to be um, the best chances and so all the connections are supremely confident about what will happen in relation to these these particular horses the jockeys go out confident they ride confidently the trainers are confident they prepare their horses confidently there's a lot of expectation going into the um, into the contest that influences the result of the contest all that intention is positive intention and it needs to be acknowledged by the form student. So while we're on the topic of form, can you give sort of the casual bettors who might have a 10 or $50 bet uh, once a week on a weekend or a race meeting, have you got any sort of, I guess, a shortened form guide that they could use when they're at the TAB, when they're at a, at a racetrack or something like that? Are there any sort of uh, tools that they could utilize to do a sort of a 10-minute a form study and... and I guess enhance their chances of uh, of winning on that day. 
All right, so they, they may, may need to do a little bit of study, but let's say that they're looking at that form guide and um, uh, I want you to focus on a horse's last start and I want you to, to look at any horses that are said to race second to the turn in their races. So the form guide will, will say, uh, settled third, second turn. So any horse that's positioned in second place on the turn and if you're able to deduce whether it was a fast or slow run race, then you can concentrate on the faster run races where the horse was doing a bit more work when it was chasing the leader. So basically we're looking for a subset of horses that are sitting outside the lead, preferably in a fast run race at their last start. And I would suggest that that's a rudimentary system that you could use to some success. What's the rationale or the logic behind that? So... Uh, it's a position where the horse is not in control of the pace, uh, so it's being asked to work possibly harder than it would like to, but that the, the work that it's doing in that race, the stress that it's encountering in that run, is priming it to such a degree that it, that it will render it more competitive at its next start. So all athletic contests require stress to bring your performance level uh, forward. And that's why we um, that's why we work horses. Well, that's why all athletes train, in fact. And that's why we give them uh, progressively more st stressful tests. So, in the case of racehorses, we jump them out of the barriers. Well, that, that in itself is stressful. And so, we subject them to the stress of competition and their innately competitive beasts. Uh, and by subjecting them to more and more stress, it brings their performance level or it. it, 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 it uh, pushes them higher and higher until obviously the horse, uh, you know, has, has had enough and, and is in need of a, a, a break or a freshen up or spell, whatever, whatever uh, a horse is required to um, to uh, um, to recover its um, <clears throat> its uh, energy levels. But yeah, the idea is that um, you know a more stressful performance in a race. Uh, will result in a better performance, given sort of sympathetic. Um, running conditions next time and what's one thing that if you were allowed to you would rip out of the form guide um, so that no one would ever see it again that is useless or irrelevant or something that just shouldn't be in there if you picked up a best bets or the newspaper on a saturday and there was one thing what would that be uh it would be the m in the form guide or it's, it depends it might be an m or a w but it denotes a horse that's won on a wet track and <clears throat> i really think that punters are um, completely misled uh, by this idea that there are wet trackers. Um, so obviously horses are retarded when the going uh, becomes inferior and all horses get slower. Some horses aren't slowed up as much as other horses. Uh, so it becomes a sort of a different contest. But this is, there's this idea that in order to play wet tracks, you need to look for wet trackers. And I consider that enormously wrong-headed I think that obviously wet tracks create a different contest, but the idea that um, because a horse has won a race on a wet track, that makes it a significant chance in an upcoming race on a wet track is, um, is an inflation, a ridiculous inflation. Uh, it may bear some relevance to today's contest, nothing like the relevance that's accorded. And you get a situation where people become quite... Um, perturbed and uh, disaffected by wet tracks. We saw a, a track at Randwick last Saturday where people were moaning and groaning because the wet trackers 
failed on this particular track. And it's, it's just, it's a one trick pony, this, this wet track idea, uh, that, that you can class horses as mudders and non-mudders. Uh, it's a variable contest and you need to keep that in mind. And the, the idea, the, the, the identification of horses as mudders uh, with the M in the form guide or the W in the form guide is um, a highly misleading concept. That is the one thing I'd get rid of. Interesting, because I would imagine a vast majority of the casual punters who are betting on a wet track, that's probably the first thing they, they seek out. So, Well, yeah, and, and that's the problem. If it was the last thing they sought out, that, that wouldn't be a problem. Um, that, would, that would probably be appropriate. But it is. It is the first thing they look, look at. They, they lose, lose complete sight of the ability of the horse. Right, right. You mentioned earlier Mark Reed gave out a lot of free information and you obviously do so yourself through the racing rant. What are some of the reasons why you do do that? Because obviously you have credibility in the industry and, and some of the things you're saying publicly through through your channels is incredibly valuable and the insights there are not necessarily rivaled by too many other people in Sydney. So do you want to take us through some of the ideas behind why you give out such great premium free content? because uh, it's not available anywhere else. So unfortunately, we have um, a one-track media uh, or mainstream media in racing. Um, once upon a time, we had, as I mentioned, there were you know broadcasts of races on um, uh, multiple radio stations and um, re- relatively well, relatively mainstream television coverage. As soon as um, as soon as the media became the domain of the tab. Uh, they dumbed it down to to the lowest common denominator. So we have a situation where there's no insight being offered via the media. Like in our in our business world, you'll obviously have commentary and and um, uh, leaders written by people that 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 know that uh, that have um, expert knowledge. Whereas in racing, there's no expert knowledge being disseminated by the mainstream media. So part of my and others' passion is actually directed at, at trying to create a create a community that can uh, can be instructive, and you know we're all seeking to learn off each other. I mean, you know, nearly all of the ideas that I've expressed in this interview are not necessarily are not original ideas of my own. They might have been finessed by me, but uh, in, in you know I was very fortunate to have a great mentor and, uh, and to have access to to some great racing brains. And it's important to actually put those racing brains on show, even though technically you may be um, reducing your particular uh, monetization. Um, if there's, if it's been an ever-shrinking game, so if it continues to shrink, there's not much point in having that uh, that edge because the monetization will become harder and harder as the game shrinks smaller and smaller. So Mark Reed's idea was: look, you've got to grow this pie so that uh, so that I can get decent whack out of it, and. Uh, whilst my thinking isn't quite the same, it is along similar lines. That's you know this is this is a, a wonderful puzzle. It's completely well, it's in, it's completely obsessed me throughout my life, and you know I just want to introduce other people to the intricacies of this this amazing thing that that not a, that it has the potential uh, to be life preserving because obviously people end their working life and they go into retirement, they, they go golfing or they go gardening, whatever they, do, whatever they do, they probably don't go bowling anymore. But um, to have an interest such as this that is 
so um, attractive to the mind and, and so engaging of the mind is an interest that is an, uh, amazing to have as a retiree. And, you know, you can clearly devote so much more time to it then as well. So I, I'm, I'm attempting to... to um, Educate community, my community. I'm, I'm hoping that my community will educate me as well, which they do. And I want to broaden that community. And um, let's face it, when you are passionate about something, you generally want to shout it from the rooftops as much as it may be in your interest to not. Yeah, I agree. And I think what you mentioned about the mainstream media and perhaps avoid there, one of the first things that they would often say on a wet track is discuss what happened in the past with those horses on a wet track. So it's a it's an interesting dynamic that you get a couple of things if you you've said um, such or so highlighted in the mainstream media before I let you go Mark and I I'm very grateful for your time and I've learned uh, so much chatting with you you mentioned the 72 Melbourne Cup I have two questions who won the 72 Melbourne Cup and are there any races from then until now that you like reminiscing about or talking about other than uh, the main Melbourne Cups so Piping Lane, an unheralded Taswegian, Tasmanian, uh, won that Melbourne Cup. Gunsin laboured into third place. I wasn't aware at the time that Gunsin wasn't really a stayer. He was more of a miler. But uh, by, by virtue of his um, amazing ability, he was, uh, he was able to be competitive in that situation. Uh, so I think Piping Lane ran long odds in that cup, which is another of those aspects of your introduction to racing. When you see big-priced winners... Um, that's a, that's a, that's, that's a bit of a, a hook. Um, as far as other races that, um, that have particularly, uh, that I'm enamoured of, uh, I would say that, I mean, obviously we, we're now in the situation where we've seen, I've seen the, the greatest racehorse I've ever seen in Winks, um, who's encapsulated, who's, um, surpassed Black Caviar, uh, um, amazingly. Um, so it's it, it sort of gobsmacking, even as a, a, an insider such as myself, to witness her performances. But from a, um, a more um, sort of on-the-ground perspective, there are those races where I have perceived um, the, the capabilities of a particular runner, and that has been that has been. Um, in evidence in the race, uh, I remember in the late 80s, there was a combination, Brian Smith was was training very well out of Sydney and he brought over Marie Linden to ride for him and that combination, I sensed, were particularly effective in certain situations and when, whenever that would come to fruition, that was particularly satisfying and ever since then, whatever sort of my hobby horse form aspect has been, whenever that is has come good. It's intensely satisfying. Um, so it's one of those situations that I'll, 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 I'll enjoy in, uh, in the coming years as well. You know, obviously, uh, I, I made mention of a particular form aspect that uh, I find exciting just as a, as a one-trick pony. Um, there'll be other things that I'll consider in the future and I'll apply them to races and when they when they work, when things work, it's, or when things, when things appear to work result-wise, uh, it's intensely satisfying. So, Mark, where can people reach out to you if they want to get involved uh, with you and, and hear, hear you on a week-to-week -week basis and, and obviously get involved in that community? What's the best avenue for them? Racingrant.com. So, one word, racingrant.com, and that will take you to um, 
two or three weekly videos, uh, previewing, reviewing, um, lots of form discussion, interesting guests. Uh, <clears throat> it's highly visual. Um, it's entertaining as well uh, because obviously you need to engage with um, your audience. And I won't say I'm the most entertaining, but we, we do have an entertaining panel. And uh, marklamborn.com also has uh, lots of stuff that I've written in the past. Uh, I wrote it for The Punters Show. The Punters Show website is, is still accessible and may be um, re-harnessed in the future. So that's puntersshow.com, marklamborn.com, and most importantly, racingrant.com. You can find me on Twitter at JustIdeal, who... Uh, I haven't made mention of, but Just Ideal was the first horse that I had a 25 cent win and place bet on uh, in the tab in 1976, and uh, he went on to win a Doncaster. And uh, I've given he's he's uh, he's my eponymous uh, Twitter handle. There you go. I think that brings up a whole bunch of questions about minimum bets and things like that. But we. We might just leave it there. Mark, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure to chat. Uh, all the very best to you, and hopefully we can have a, a further discussion down the line. We will indeed, Jake. Thanks for that.